Was Korach really that misguided? I mean, surely all he wanted was unity in the Jewish world. When we examine the punishments that Hashem meted out on Korach and his followers, it gives us a great insight into where Korach was so subtly and yet so fundamentally misguided. So let's see what it says. We see that there are two different punishments for Korach and his followers. All the people who were part of Korach's team, which includes, of course, the famous rogues, they were swallowed up by the earth, as the Pesach says. They all were sucked down while alive into the depths of, of depths. Whereas the 250 leaders of the community who brought Keturus as part of the test of whether or not Aaron should be the Kohen Gadol, they were burnt in fire. Now, Kedua, we well know that that if there's a punishment that comes from on high, those punishments will always be suited to and along the same theme as what the person did wrong. Like the Gvorin Sota tells us, the measurement that a person uses, basically, to choose their behavior. That's how we measure out the punishment and consequence for the same person. Everybody agrees with that principle. Even though there are two views about exactly how it works. One view is that it's not an automatic and direct consequence that a person does an Avera and that causes the punishment or does a mitzvah and that causes the reward. Rather, it's some kind of a system that Hashem has determined that this will be the punishment for that. So, but even according to that view, it's always measure for measure. And how much more so the according to the view that says that reward and punishment in Torah are almost like the natural outcome and consequence of behavior. You behave in such a way, it causes this particular outcome. So the point is that the punishments selected for them to be swallowed by the earth and to be burned by fire are not accidental, and they give us a profound insight into what's going on, and they must be on the theme of their behavior. In which case, we need to understand what is the connection and the comparison between the two different kinds of um, punishment, burning the one group and swallowing the other in the earth, and the Avera for which they were punished, which is a machlokas on Moshe Aaron, the way that they debated or argued against Moshe and Aaron's authority. So one might be easier to understand, and that's how they were swallowed by the earth. Might be easier to understand. When we're told that the one group was punished, Korach and his followers, to be swallowed by the earth, that they went down into the depths of the depths alive. You could say it's very obvious why they were punished in this particular way. Because what was the nature of their complaint against Moshe? Firstly, they complained that Moshe came up with all these appointments of his own accord and he chose family and it was all nepotism. But their ultimate end goal was that if they would succeed in their argument, they would be upgraded and they would become koihanim. They would become leaders. So because their intention was to elevate themselves, the suitable punishment for them was that they were actually cast down into the lowest possible depths. They went down, so to speak, alive into the depths, the bowels of the earth. And you could even apply a similar kind of logic to those who were punished to be burnt. 
You can see the link because Mipashtas Aksuvi Mashma, the simple understanding of the Pasuk indicates Sha'inish Asrefa Ba, why were they burned? Because they brought Katoris as part of the ongoing argument of Moshe proving that they were wrong. And to bring Katoris requires fire. Ah, so they did something in their rebellion that was associated with fire, they get punished by fire. Because the fire that they brought was a foreign, inappropriate kind of a fire. Because the people who brought this Katoris were not Kohanim, therefore they were actually disqualified from bringing the Katoris. So there's an Avera that they did. So, so they brought the wrong fire, they were consumed by fire. That would be a very simplistic and somewhat superficial analysis of what's happening over here. But it would not give us a full understanding because the fact that the 250 leaders brought Katoris was on Moshe's instruction. And yes, of course, we know that the reason Moshe challenged them to bring the Katoris was to clarify that Aaron deserves to be the Kohen Gadol and none of them. That the person Hashem chooses, as the Pasuk says, that will be the holy person, i.e. Aaron. As Rashi says, and everybody else will be destroyed. But that wasn't, that was just a function of the process to bring Katoris. That wasn't their sin. They didn't rebel and say, we want to bring Katoris. That, that wasn't the approach. Their core sin was that they argued against Moshe and Aaron and their, their, their respective positions. As the Pasuk says clearly, that this is what has to, they had to be this, uh, taking the pans and making them a covering for the Mizbeach. So they refer to as those who sinned with their souls. Shepirosha, what does it mean they sinned with their souls? How did they sin with their souls? Because they objected to and they argued with what Hashem had chosen to happen. So it doesn't really sound right that you say, they get burnt because they brought Katoris. Katoris is not their issue. Their issue is arguing against Moshe and Aaron. Furthermore, Taking their pans that they used to bring Katoris, Hashem instructed to make a coating for the Mizbeach. Why was it to be this coating on the Mizbeach? In order that these pans, now beaten flat, should be they should be a reminder that any time people look at the Mizbeach, they think, oh, that's a reminder that those people, they challenged the Kahuna. And therefore, they were punished. So what's the punishment for challenging the kahuna, not for bringing the katoris? If we want to say the mida can negate mida, is because they brought katoris, which is with fire, therefore they were burnt with fire. Well, then it would imply that the main point of showing the community what went wrong, the fact that what they did wrong was to challenge the leadership of Moshe and Aaron, that's missing from the whole picture. So there has to obviously be more to why it's fire and why it's being swallowed by earth. Therefore, we have no choice but to say the fact that these people were burnt to death is directly related to the fact that these people challenged Moshe and Aaron's opinions or positions. And so we've got to understand what then is the connection because there's no obvious connection between fire and challenging their leadership. 
And the truth is that even though we had a beautiful explanation that they wanted to raise themselves, so the punishment was that they fell into the earth, still needs to be understood. Because because if we're explaining that the main thing is that they fell down to the lowest depths, that emphasizes that emphasizes the fact that they fell down into the earth. Which would make perfect sense, right? It's the descent as a punishment for them trying to prop themselves up to an, un, uh, an inappropriate ascent. But when you read the Psukim, and the various commentaries on the Psukim, the emphasis is not that they went down, the emphasis is the fact that they were swallowed, the Colossian Hazal, as Hazal referred to them as those who were swallowed. So, what's the connection between being swallowed, not just going downwards, being swallowed, and the punishment for their behavior? Now, there's another question that we have to address over here. seems like a detail, but it's actually going to be the core of understanding what's happening. But Medrash Esau, the Medrash tells us that Korach loko yosemikulam, that Korach was punished more severely than everybody else. Because Shen Nisraf, on the one hand, he was burnt, Venivla, and he was swallowed by the earth. But Loman asked says the Medrash, so why did he have to be punished twice? She'ilu Nisraf aloi nivla, because had he been burnt and not swallowed, the people who would have been swallowed would have said, Kerach is the one who got us into this mess, and he wasn't swallowed along with us. And likewise, the corollary, if he had only been swallowed by the earth and not burned, and those who were burned to death would have complained, who brought us all this tzoros? We're burned, and he's being saved. Therefore, the Medrash says he was actually punished double and he died through both processes. Now, but let's think about this logically. Let's say that Korach had been like anybody else and had died in one of the two ways. So maybe his colleagues would have complained and said, that's not right. He should have also suffered the way that we've suffered. And maybe they would have said, you know, the way we were punished is more severe than the way he was punished. How could they use an expression, he was saved? He wasn't saved. He wouldn't have been saved. The fact is he would die. So what's the Medrash trying to say? That they might say he died in a different way and therefore he was saved. He, he wasn't saved. He died. So to understand all of this, we've got to get to the core of what exactly did Karach want and how did he get it so wrong? So for Yuvan Bahakta Mabira will understand this by first understanding what is the core issue that Karach builds his issues on. Tainas Karach Hoisa, as we know the Pasik tells us that Karach's complaint was the entire nation is holy. And Hashem is within the entire nation. So therefore, why are you, Moshe and Aaron, elevating yourself over the rest of the community? In other words, what Kerach wanted, that there should, no, there should be no classes, there should be no distinctions between different Jewish people. And they definitely should not be any Jew who has authority over another Jew. And therefore he thought if we could level the playing field, make everybody have the same status, then we would have Jewish unity. Sounds like a very noble objective. 
that Kairach, with all his good intentions, his argument and his behavior, resulted in the exact opposite of unity, created the ultimate division and conflict. Like Unclus in the first line of the parish says, and Kairach took what is it took himself apart. He separated. To the point that Koirach's uh, issues with Moshe become the, the icon of conflict in Judaism. Like the halacha says, any person who sustains a conflict transgresses a negative commandment in the Torah. As the Pasuk says, that you may not be like Koirach. So here you have Koirach who wants this massive, beautiful, uh, uniform community. And ends up generating the worst conflict in our history. Now that doesn't seem to make sense for the Chayra. Kate said, How is it possible? How could it be that you have somebody who's calling for and working for and, and petitioning for Jewish unity? How could he be the one who produces the most violent debate, uh, uh, conflict and separation? Such a terrible. To the point that any other conflict in Judaism is always tracked back to and named after Korach. How is that possible? How can you have such great intentions with such horrible results? And the answer is that it's beautiful to look for unity, but there have to be certain boundaries. And that is alluded to when Moshe responds to Korach and he says, in the morning, Hashem will let us know who He has chosen. So the Medrash comes, Rashi brings it, we all know it. Moshe says to Kerach and Ko, They should divided up certain boundaries in the creation that He made. Can you mix up day and night? The Torah says clearly, there was morning and Hashem distinguished and separated between night and day. You can't reverse that. Likewise, Hashem separated us, the Jewish people, from the rest of the nations on earth. And likewise, and this is the point that's relevant to Kerach's argument, Hashem distinguished Aaron from the rest of the community. As the Pasuk says, that Hashem took Aaron and he separated him to sanctify him with the most extreme, intense version of holiness that could exist. In the same way as if you could theoretically blur the lines between day and night, switch day and night, confuse day and night, then you'd be able to get rid of the boundary between Aaron and everybody else. In other words, it's a rhetorical statement, can't happen. So Koyach's issue is his inability to respect the boundaries that Hashem puts into the world. As Borobazet, just to understand better what those boundaries are all about, as the Mishnah Pirkovas tells us, the world was created with Hashem expressing ten utterances, not just one, let there be, be existence, because the Ebishter wants to say, show there's distinction in this world. Therefore, the emergent creation is in such a way that Hashem divided up separate boundaries in His world. That's how the world operates. 
There are different levels between different created beings. And each kind of created being has its own set of parameters, which gives it its uniqueness, and it finds it and distinguishes it from the next thing. That's why a table is not a tree, and a tree is not a ladybird, and a ladybird is not a person. Just as there are the very clear and obvious distinctions between times, like day and night, where day and night and the specifics of, of the times within day and night, each one has its particular purpose. And if each slot is as it should be, and fulfills its purpose, that is suited to its particular time and parameters, then you have a full day. If dawn does what dawn has to do, and noon does what noon has to do, and dusk does what dusk has to do, then you have a day. So Kainu, just as it is with time, likewise, it's the same with the purpose and the work of every single created being. When is creation full and successful and workable? When every created being fulfills the purpose for which it was created by its definition, and its specific set of boundaries. So bees produce honey, and mosquitoes bite people. But the moment any part of creation does not fulfill the task for which it was created and defined, and instead works on some kind of avoider that is really allocated to another being, that starts to undermine and confuse the entire system and structure of creation. In the same way as there are clear distinctions between every single creature and being, lions should not become vegetarian. That's not their tafkid. Okay, when Moshiach comes, a different story. But right now, that's not their tafkid. In the same way, there are different energies of godliness that exist within the world, and they have to be in their allocated space, doing their allocated purpose. These energies which come from beyond the created reality and seep into the created reality. So in, in the realm of holiness, there are different realities. And all of them in three different dimensions. Oilam, space, shana, time, nefesh, the human experience, which is represented by the abbreviation, Oshan. So there's a distinction when it comes to space. For example, now we're talking from a spiritual perspective, not just from a physical perspective. So the Mishnah tells us there are ten levels of holiness in Eretz Yisrael. Yerushalayim is different to Harabayis. It's different to the rest of Eretz Yisrael, etc. That's a reality. Yerushalayim cannot become Harabayis. Harabayis cannot be the Kodesh HaKadoshim. You have the same thing with the calendar. Weekdays, Yom Tev, Shabbos, and then Shabbos, Shabbos, and Yom Kippurim. So Shabbos is not a Yom Kippur. And a yontav is not a Shabbos. So the spiritual reality and the energy flows of our world are very clearly defined, different things for different places and different times. Now coming to Kairach's point, the same applies to people, the, Jews, the Jewish soul. Starting with the most obvious, which is that we're a nation divided into three segments. Koyhanim, Levim, Yisraelim. And then, Ovein HaKoyhanim, Gufa, in the world of Koyhanim, still, I mean, Koyen Hedet, Avad Ladag Hanalis, Biyosu, Koyen Godel. You have all the way from the ordinary Koyen, right up to the Koyen Godel. 
Or the ten general categories of Jewish people described in Pashas Nitzavim, to those who head up the tribes, all the way down to those who are just simple woodchoppers and water carriers. And then beyond that, there are 600,000 different distinctions of the energies of Nishamas. Now the same rules apply right across the board, and therefore, just like in the created reality, the objective is, the ultimate way that the world should work, is that nothing should switch roles and do something it's not suited to. So the moon should not pop up in the middle of the day, even though occasionally we see it in the day, but that's, not to, that's obviously part of its role. Every creation has to fulfill its mission and not the mission of someone else. So mosquitoes should not go to try and produce honey. And that is how we achieve a peaceful world to live in because everything works the way that it should. The ecosystem is whole. As, as you see in, 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 in very practical terms, when do you have peace in a society, for example, when people are not encroaching on other people's sources of livelihood or their opportunities, etc. And you don't go battle against somebody else to try to take something that really belongs to them, that you believe belongs to you. That's where peace comes from. Peace comes from respecting the fact that they've allocated that for them and this for me. So that's what I have. Coming back to Korach's issue, the same principles exactly apply to different levels of holiness. When is there peace in spiritual terms? When there is no conflict and there's no con- contradiction between one level and another, whether it be in the realm of space, time, or the soul. Everybody is given their space to do their job without encroachment. Now, that's the first level of holiness. The first level of peace. Everybody does what they're meant to do to the best of their abilities. But it gets higher than that. That's actually not absolute peace. In fact, that could be a completely disjointed society. Everybody is doing their particular role in the factory. The factory works. Nobody has anything to do with anybody else. You can't really call that peace. It's just lack of conflict. Because you're describing a reality where everybody lives in their own little world. Without any real meaningful connection to to the next world, the next person, the next creation, the next energy. Everything is fundamentally separate. That's not shalom. Shalom is not separation. You could apply the word shalom as a borrowed term for the situation. To illustrate the fact that they're not fighting with each other. But that's not real shalom, which implies that people get along and that there's actually unity. There's just the absence of conflict. The absence of conflict does not automatically equal peace. So what is peace? Real peace is when there is cross-pollination, when there is complementing each other. So where one is able to fulfill what the other is unable to do, so we can collaborate and we can work together. That's shalom. 
which would mean, besides the fact that every element of creation has its own reality that is clear and defined and working well, beyond that, there has to be the flow, the giving, the input, the sharing, the inspiring of one to the other. They call out to each other because the Malachim each have different energies. As we say in Uvalitzi, and they, they receive energy from each other. Or there's giving from the higher to the lower, like the teacher to the student, or the benefactor to the person in need, or the spiritual entity to the lower spiritual entity. Or, as the Chazal say very simply about the Beis Amikdash, which is a pristine place of absolute holiness that could be self-contained, and yet it generated and radiated light that impacted and elevated the entire world, because that's Shalom. You see it on the calendar. Shabbos is not just an island in time, but it spills over and it influences and it uplifts the entire week that's going to follow. Or another example, when the Kohen Gadol would do his various types of avoidah, he would bring, even though he was living on a very high, elevated spiritual level, he'd bring spiritual value to the rest of the Jewish people. Or many, many other examples. The Koyanim, who don't just live in their little enclave, but they reach out to us and they bless us, etc. In other words, the ultimate state of Shalom is where there is a give and take, where there's a sharing, where there's collaboration, where there's adding value to each other. And by the way, it works the other way, not only from the empowered to the disempowered, how did we build the Beis Hamikdash and the Mishkan, which are these epicenters of holiness? Through the donations of ordinary people like us. And the fact that the Shina would, on a constant basis, continue to dwell in the Mishkan of the Beis Hamikdash, that's because we consistently came forward and brought Karbonos, and that elicits this holiness. In other words, there is interaction. That's real peace. And you see a similar kind of energy when it comes to the calendar. Besides the obvious, which is that Yom Tov, in order to be Yom Tov, in order to be a holy day, is completely reliant on us, the Jewish people. And depending on how good our Avoida is, will determine the level of holiness of a particular Yom Tov. Because, because as we well know, Hashem empowered us. We're the ones who get to sanctify time and turn an ordinary day into Yom Tov by planning the calendar. But even with regards to Shabbos, which is out of our hands, Shabbos is set from the beginning of creation every seventh day, regardless of what we do or don't do. Yet, we know very well the expression, which most people think is just pragmatic, but we're about to discover is a very deep spiritual message. The person who toils before Shabbos will eat, in other words, benefit on Shabbos. Most people think that means if you prepare the challenge, you'll eat the challenge. But it has a deeper meaning, which is the degree of holiness that a person experiences on Shabbos is greater if that person added more value to their avoider during the week. So if you served Hashem the way that you should during the week, then Shabbos is a different kind of Shabbos. And the same thing applies to people. So the Gemara describes with regards to a koin, the Torah tells us that we have to sanctify the koin. What does that mean for you and I? 
that if there's anything that is associated with holiness, we prioritize the Kohen. He's first to open the Torah and, and read. The first to bless. To get the nicest portion of food, etc. Perhaps we could suggest, says the Rebbe, if you pass the Salosh and Vekid Dash Toy, the language is Vekid, you make him holy. That implies that the Jewish person adds to the holiness of a Kohen. Now, Kohen is already holy, but the impl- implication is that we add to the holiness of the Kohen. It's not just that, you know, you've got to be nice, you've got to be respectful to the Kohen, it's appropriate. But rather, by us showing that respect to the Kohen, we actually add to his Kedusha. So the point is that it's not good enough just to say shalom is you do your job at your absolute best and I'll do my job at the absolute best, but rather to say I'll work to the best and you'll work to the best and then we'll work together and complement each other both from higher to lower, lower to higher, and that's our absolute shalom. This is only possible if you can distinguish the difference between one level and the other. If you, if you can't distinguish the differences, how can they be the flow and the complementing of each other? So you can distinguish and you can interact. That's the ultimate shalom. So Derech Zoi, taking this approach, will eventually get us to the ultimate, ultimate level of shalom. The ultimate level of shalom. Which is where every single level of existence reaches its pinnacle and its perfection. explains about the Jewish people. The nature of the Jewish people is we all depend on each other. And take all of the Jews and put us together and we're like a single entity. We're like the parts of the body where every part of the body has something to contribute not only to the body as a whole but to the other limbs. The same thing applies to us. Every Jewish person contributes to the entire being of the whole Jewish people. Of the Shonesh Rabbi Nazaken, to paraphrase direct from the, or to quote directly from the Alter Rebbe, look at a human being. A human being has a full anatomy. From a head all the way down to feet. Even though the legs and the feet are the bottom and lowest part of the anatomy. And the, the head is not only at the top, it's the most sophisticated part of the body. Yet you find that legs have an advantage over the brain. Because if you want to move, a brain can't move. It needs legs in order to walk. And legs hold up the whole body, head included. And if there is an issue that affects the, the head, you let blood from the feet or from the legs and it heals the brain. And, and, and the, the brain actually, the, the head actually gets new energy from the feet. That indicates to us clearly that the head cannot be a perfect head without the feet. It's the same with the Jewish people. Every one of us is completely reliant on every one of us. A similar thing would apply to the world itself. The Kodesh HaKadoshim, which is the highest of the ten levels of holiness in Israel, is only the highest if they're the other nine. If not, it's not part of the ten. 
You've got to have every part in play in order to have the ultimate holiness and greatness. The same thing applies in time. When can you say time is as it should be with its greatest perfection? Only when it's a collection of weekdays and Shabbos and Yantav, then you have the full spectrum of time. As as the the name Shana implies, something which repeats and something which is that goes through all the seasons with all the changes that happen in the seasons. Put that all together, and you have a year. Which helps us to understand. And if we're going to talk about peace, and we're going to talk about unity. What we're really saying is that every detail comprises one single overarching reality. But you can only do that if you have boundaries, parameters. You have to have the things that distinguish a weekday from a Shabbos and a Kodesh HaKadoshim from a Yerushalayim. Because to bring them together into a single entity, in time and space and in the human experience, you can only get there if you identify the distinctions. If you don't know where the leg is, how can you do the bloodletting that's going to help the brain? It doesn't work to say, oh, it's all one body. No, you have to know which part does which. Like you see with the human body. When can you say that a person has a whole and complete wholesome body? Only when the body is able to distinguish between the brain and the torso and the legs. To know the difference between this organ and that sinew and that, and that muscle. In other words, it's a fascinating concept. The goal and objective is absolute unity, and you can only achieve it by recognizing the value of every component that comprises that unity. Now, what we've just described, which is the various stages of peace and unity in the various realities of the world, time, space, and the human experience. So that's talking about anything that is created. Because as we mentioned before, the nature of creation is that it begins with distinction, 10 different utterances, 10 different channels of energy. For which reason, the reality of our creation is that it is comprised of this massive spectrum of very different elements. So even the or the energy, the light, the kedusha that flows into the world, or to put it differently, the divine energy and light that filters into the world so that the world should be able to exist with all its different components. That set of energies must also have distinction, separation, ten spheroids, ten energies, put them all together and you get one holistic system, which is bringing godliness into the world, which is our goal. But when you look at the light as it is, not the light as it plays the role of energizing the world, light as it is light. Or if you go higher than that, 
to its root, where the light comes from. Until eventually you hit the highest possible source and root of everything, which is Hashem's essence, which obviously is beyond any description or distinction or parameters. Then you can't use language like peace and unity. All you can say is, absolute oneness. In other words, Hashem is not one because all the pieces of the puzzle come together and therefore they create a tapestry. Hashem is one in the simplest sense of one. One as in the core of everything. Now that absolute oneness can reflect in the experience of Kedusha in the three dimensions of the world. For example, the ultimate state of geography is the Kodesh We know that what happens in the Kodesh HaKadoshim defies all the rules of creation because the Oren is measurable yet doesn't take up space. Implying that the space itself is actually beyond space. Which is obviously something that is only possible when you're dealing with Hashem's essence, yet you see it experienced here on earth. Then, Bashana, you have a similar experience in time. Yom Kippurim, Shubivichinas Achas Bashana. Yom Kippur is a single day because it's a single element that sits at the core of the entire year. Everything else comes from that. Everything else is the, the refraction of light from this original light. And in human terms, that's why there's only one Kohen Godel who then in turn inspires the entire community. Take that unique human, the Kohen Godel. Who then enters on the holiest day, that unique one day of the year, to the holiest place. That is somebody who is able to bring real wholeness and peace into the world. Not just peace in the colloquial sense, but peace in the ultimate sense, the oneness, the simple oneness of Hashem's essence. El the Kohen Gadol can bring that to the entire Jewish nation as they are. Each one operating with their specific, unique um, avoider that they're trying to do and their specific kedusha uh, makeup that they have. Now we can start to understand not only what Koyach did wrong, but specifically what Chazal say about him. That Koyach should be Koyach. That Koyach was genius. So what prompted him to get involved with such nonsense? Now, I mean, the fact that he's described as being this genius, even though prior to Parashas Koyach, we're never told that Koyach stood out as this uniquely brilliant person. Move on that indication, that how do we know, where do we learn that Kerach is, is brilliant, is from this story. And despite the fact that this story illustrates his brilliance, it's in this story they would say, so why did he get involved with this nonsense? In other words, blended in and mixed in with his brilliance is his foolishness. How is that possible? What is the def- defining element of wisdom and brilliance? Like the well-known statement of Chazal, who is wise? Somebody could see how things are going to develop, how things are going to pan out. Somebody who is that wise doesn't only see what can easily be seen. And 
he, that, the, the person is so wise because they can see what lies beneath, what lies below, what lies deep within, and will only emerge somewhere far down the line. That's a pikeach. Kloima, this is Koyach's problem, believe it or not. He's too smart. He sees things that are not yet in this world. His argument, which is, we should not be splitting the community into different levels. Everybody's holy, and Hashem is with everybody. Why elevate yourself? That's the result of his incredible brilliance, that he could see what nobody else could see. He's able to see how the real oneness and peace that should exist at its highest level is. And at that level, there are no distinctions. Everything is absolute oneness. And no, nobody can see it yet because it will only be revealed in the time of Mashiach when we will translate into the reality of peace in this world. As the Pasuk says about that time, nobody will teach anybody else because everybody will know equally. So Kayach sees that. He sees a future world. He sees a world of oneness. And he wants it now. That's why it was foolish. It's only possible to reach that level of complete oneness. Either by being connected right back to the source of all sources, the root of all roots, Hashem's essence, or you're living in the time of Mashiach where that essence is revealed. Whereas now, here in our world, in the ordinary time where we're supposed to serve Hashem, that approach, not only will it not achieve peace, to the contrary, believe it or not, it will cause conflict. How? Abirba's explanation is. As soon as he puts forward the suggestion that everybody is equally holy, and therefore his thesis is if everybody is holy, Joe Schmo can walk into the base of and bring a carbon just like the Koyan can. Because Korach would now be suggesting something that is not that person's goal, not their mission, not their spiritual realm. He's going to cause a breakdown, a separation between that person and their spiritual objective. The spark of godliness, the spark of creator that lives inside every single Jewish person. Which is the conduit to allow that individual to receive, to get the energy that the Kohen Godel would channel towards them. Sorry, so the spark of godly connection flies out of the person because the person's not doing his job. So goodbye, I'm out of here. I'm, I'm not going to be part of this. You're not doing your job. And because this particular person is not in a position to be able to anchor such a high, lofty, divine element as Korach would propose. Now without that guided spiritual input from on high, the spark of creation which lives inside every single person which is basically the human as we know it 
Yorid Venevla Lamato has nothing to tether it, nothing to hold it on high, nothing to propel it upward. So where does it go? It falls and it gets, dis- it gets swallowed up in the world. In other words, when a person is not doing what they should, that environment will consume them rather than elevate them. And that's on the individual basis. The same applies on the communal level. If we don't have the appropriate leadership that does elevate themselves over us to guide us and inspire us. And all the boundaries between the different segments of Judaism fall by the wayside. And you cannot distinguish any longer between who's the Kohen God and who's anybody else. Because as we said before, it's only by having those clear, healthy fences that we have a clear, healthy nation that can actually unite. It's only when you have those distinctions so you know who has to give in which situation and where to give and how to give and who needs to receive and therefore you have a healthy Jewish community. Get rid of that. Remove the Kohen Gadol and you actually find the Jewish community now fragments. Because effectively, those who are the leaders of the community are now removed from having the ability to inspire. Which naturally is going to cause the ordinary people of the folk to, to, to stray, to, to float off. With all of this information, now we get why the appropriate responses and punishments for the two groups of Kerach's followers was on the one hand to be swallowed and on the other hand to be burnt. And, and both of them respond to the fact that they had a conflict with Moshe. Because it's these two components. In fact, specifically when they're together, they express and represent the split, the fragmentation, which causes the high realms to elevate out of our range of experience and the lower realms to sink. So what happens when you burn something? When you burn something, the more subtle or less physical elements evaporate. They burn, they elevate, they fly upwards, they turn into gas. And when you bury something, you take the very tangible and you stick it down into the most tangible part of the world, into the ground. Those are the parts that actually can't be elevated. And the two actually go hand in hand. Hand in hand with this story of the punishments and who got the punishments. Who got burned? The 250 leaders of the community who brought Keturus. Why? They're the leaders. They're the great leaders, the elevated personalities. They're the heads of the Sanhedrin. So what happens to them? They get detached from the community. Whereas who got swallowed? The people who were in the, in the environment of Dos and and the other followers of Kerach, they were already lowly people. As we've already read prior in the, in the Torah, who these people were and what they got up to. In fact, they're Dos and Aviram, right at the beginning of the story, they're already described as Rishoim. So when we talk about those who were swallowed up into the ground, we don't just talk about the fact that they went down. 
but we emphasize that they were swallowed. Meaning, what we're describing is that whatever holy spark was within their reality, albeit a lowly reality, because they broke down the healthy barriers, their holiness got sucked into the world of impurity. And they became the battery pack. Sorry, skip the line over there. As we well know that the sparks of holiness that land up in the world of Klippa of impurity, we describe those holy sparks that get misguided and misdirected and they land up empowering the world of impurity. We call them swallowed. Then I see him fly out of the community, upwards, can no longer relate to the community, and the lowly people sink downwards into the world of Klippa. Now we can understand why the Medrash says Kerach had both. Because Kerach is the root from which the entire conflict erupted, he's the one who seduced everybody to get involved. So therefore the way he's punished will represent both sides of the damage that he had caused. If theoretically Koyak was only punished with one of the two, either only burned or only swallowed, we could have said, ah, he's saved, meaning if he's swallowed alive, we'll say, okay, so the Nitzot's boire, which is in him, the spark of creator, which is in him, was saved. If he was just burned, we'd say, the Nitzot's nivra was saved. That's why Kerech was punished with the double whammy of both kinds of punishment. His neshama was burnt, which represents the higher elements of his personality and character. And his body remained alive. That's the lower part of him. And that part then rolled on the ground. And got swallowed into the ground because that's exactly what's happening over here. He created this Vespalag, the separation between the high and the low realms, and that's actually what happened to him. His Nisham and body effectively went different ways. This has a lesson for all of us at all times, and a very apt lesson for now. There are those who unfortunately, argue, the most important thing is shalom, peace. We've got to bring people together. That's the most important thing. And therefore, because the most important thing is unity and Jewish unity at that, we need to be willing to compromise the boundaries that the Torah and that Hashem has set in order to achieve this oneness. The first mechitza to fall is the healthy divide between men and women. You start considering women as witnesses in the Jewish courts. Making women's minyonim or counting a woman for a minyon. And then the next level is he starts making this uh, interfaith dialogue and we'll learn from you and you'll learn from us. And one of the worst of all is to break through the barrier that has always kept us 
distinct from the nations of the world. The so-called reform conversion, conversions that don't adhere to halacha. And everybody says, that's going to create peace. That's what my story comes to teach us. When we get rid of the boundaries that the Eibishter determined for the world. Besides the main thing, besides the main thing that this is against the Torah, it's a conflict directed against Hashem Himself. But besides that, it will never work. It will never bring peace. It will only generate more conflict in the future. Things that are fundamentally different or even opposed to each other. It's impossible to bring them together unless you have the healthy boundaries. A great example of this is The only way that fire and water, which are complete opposites, can ever interact is with a healthy boundary between them. For example, you put a pot of water on the fire to boil the pot. It's good for the water. But if there wasn't a pot, the fire would either evaporate the water or the water would extinguish the fire. Without that healthy boundary, and tell us then there's no value in bringing the two together. Not only is there no value, each one will actually cancel the other one out. It's only when we uphold and strengthen the boundaries that Hashem placed in His world. Which means every person is true to their role that Hashem allocated them in this world. Then you can have peace between all the various components. Because then it will be peace that is founded on Torah, where every path within Torah is a path of peace. Then that will bring us to the time, the time where there will be no war, no jealousy, no competition. And then we'll be able to have Mashiach come, who is a descendant of both David and Melech and His name Shlomo Melech because he brings peace in his time. Because guess what? Even when Mashiach comes, the Jews and the rest of the world will also be distinct from each other. As the Pasuk tells us, strangers will come and they'll look after our amenities and our needs. And the Mashiach will fix the whole world that everybody will serve Hashem in unity. As the Pasuk tells us that then Hashem will tra- transform and Mashiach will, will, will influence the, the nations of the world to transform their language, to speak in a clear language, the, na- the, the words of Hashem, to call out in Hashem's name. And then we'll have absolute peace. It should happen. Take it from Yad Mamish.